The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, let's sit and meditate for a few minutes. Work on the skill of meditating after a meal. And the big issue is going to be drowsiness. So try to breathe in a way that's more energizing. Think of the breath energy going way down into your intestines, down into your hips, down into your lower back. Aerating everything in the whole torso. You may find long in-breaths and short out-breaths helpful. But again, test things for yourself to see what kind of breathing helps keep you awake and yet focused. Or another technique for working with drowsiness is to go through the body point by point by point, like we did this morning, but much more quickly. Two breaths per point. And then three breaths per point, and then four, until you're ready to settle down and settle down with a sense of being awake and alert. Before you open your eyes, stop for a moment to take stock of how the meditation went for the past 20 minutes. And if you notice anything that you did that seemed to get good results, take note of that. So next time you're having trouble settling the mind down, you might give that particular technique a try. And then remembering to keep your awareness with the breath and the body as much as possible, you can open your eyes. We stopped this morning with passage 8. Passage 9 basically illustrates that point I made earlier. Anyone else need readings? Doesn't have them? Passage 9 illustrates the point I made earlier about times when as a Buddha, you see that you can simply look on a particular cause of stress and it goes away, and other times when you actually have to exert a fabrication, which could mean working with bodily fabrication, working with the way you breathe, working with verbal fabrication, the way you're thinking about and evaluating the issue, and working with mental fabrication, the feelings and perceptions you have around that particular issue. One of my favorite perceptions, if someone does something that I really disapprove of, I ask myself, who made me the National Bureau of Standards? <laughs> that changes your perception of the, of the situation quite a bit. 
Passage 10 gets us more into discussion of right mindfulness. Here the Buddha makes a distinction between three aspects of practicing mindfulness. One is the establishing of mindfulness, and this is the word citipatthana. Patana is actually not is not the word. It's sati, and then is upatana. Upatana means to establish something. And then there's the development of the establishing of mindfulness and the path of practice leading to the development. Now it's important to keep these three stages separate because when we finally turn to look at the Satipatthana Sutta, we'll, we'll see that the, the Buddha is talking about several stages in the practice as he's going through the different um, aspects of the, of the standard refrain. Now, the establishing of mindfulness is what we've been talking about earlier, the case where a monk remains focused on the body and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. The same with feelings, mind, and mental qualities in and of themselves. This is called the establishing of mindfulness. Now, the development of the establishing of mindfulness, this is point we want to get into here. There's a case where a monk remains focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the body, remains focused on the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the body, remains focused on the phenomenon of origination and passing away with regard to the body, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, and then the same with the other establishings of mindfulness. Now, this development here, the couple terms in here I'd like to talk about, one is called, called the phenomenon of origination. Sometimes you'll see this translated simply as the phenomenon of arising. But the Buddhist, the word here is samudhya, which means the origination. It means a cause, something that goes together with something and causes it to happen. So basically, you're looking for things arising and passing away, but you also understand what causes them to arise at the same time that you're trying to maintain your frame of reference with the body. So you try to keep the frame of reference with the body, and then whatever else arises and passes away within that frame of awareness, you notice, you try to notice, okay, why is this arising? Why is it passing away? Now, to, to understand how things are arising, you have to experiment. Understand connections between cause and effect. And you ask any scientist, and say you run an experiment, you want to see if X is connected with Y, then you do an experiment where there's X, and what happens to Y, and then there's no X, see what happens to Y. And then you begin to see if there's a correspondence between the two. I mean, it seems to be no connection. Y still happens, whether or not X is there, you realize there's no connection. If Y happens only when X is there and it goes away when X is there, then you know there's a connection. So you can't just sit there and watch willy-nilly. You've got to play with the causes, right? Okay. And that's what you're doing when you meditate. And you're, this is one of the reasons why mindfulness and concentration go together. You are trying to bring the mind to concentration, and then you're going to notice what's working and what's not working with regard to getting the mind to settle down. So you've got a task to perform, and then in the context of the task, then you're going to start seeing what's connected to what, what works and what doesn't work when you're trying to get the mind to settle down. As you play with the breath, as you play with your focal point, as you try to spread the thoughts of the feelings of pleasure or bliss or rapture around the body, it's in the process of experimenting with different approaches that you're going to understand what's causing what and what's not related to what. So that's how you remain focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the body. And you'll find that there are a couple of analogies that are appropriate here that the Buddha himself gives. Some of the analogies he gives are 
basically applying to that first step, which is just simply establishing mindfulness. You're trying to establish a frame of reference and trying to maintain that frame of reference and not get distracted by other things. That's why they say, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And the Buddha has two little stories that illustrate this point of when you're trying to really just get the mind, work on just establishing mindfulness. First story. Once a hawk suddenly swooped down on a quail and seized it. Then the quail, as was being carried off by the hawk, lamented, Oh, just my bad luck and lack of merit. Can you imagine a quail saying that? <laughs> that I was wandering out of my proper range and into the territory of others. If only I had kept to my proper range today, to my own ancestral territory, this hawk would have been no match for me in battle. <laughs> you can imagine what the hawk is thinking. This little pipsqueak, what is it? What do you think it's doing? But what is your proper range, the hawk asked. What is your own ancestral territory? And the quail says, a newly plowed field with clumps of earth all turned up. So the hawk, without bragging about its own strength, without mentioning its own strength, let go of the quail. Go, quail, but even when you have gone there, you won't escape me. Then the quail, having gone to a newly plowed field with clumps of earth all turned up, and climbing on top of a large clump of earth, stood taunting the, ta 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 taunting the hawk. Now come and get me, you hawk. Now come and get me, you hawk. So the hawk, without bragging about its own strength, without mentioning its own strength, folded its two wings and suddenly swooped down toward the quail. When the quail knew the hawk is coming at me full speed, it slipped behind the clump of earth, and right there the hawk shattered its own breast. Hmm. This is what happens to anyone who wanders into what is not his proper range and is the territory of others. Now the Buddha's explanation here is that for the quail, the improper range stands for the five strings of sensuality, pleasant, pleasant sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. If you go wandering around and how pretty those are, you're going to leave your ancestral territory, which is the four frames of reference. Okay? Your proper range is the four establishings of mindfulness. So this is the importance of keeping hold on that one topic that you're going to hold in mind as your frame of reference. You wander off, you're going to get caught by Mara. Okay? Mara's going to get you. That's one story. These are pretty gruesome stories. Um, they're good for right after a meal, and they're also good... The, the, You notice as you go through the Pali Canon that the stories are pretty extreme. You know, the, the Buddha talks about bandits capturing you and sawing off your arms and legs with a two-handled saw. You remember the image. You know. okay. Okay. Okay, here's another one. There are in the Himalayas, the king of mountains, difficult, uneven areas where neither monkeys nor human beings wander. There are difficult, uneven areas where monkeys wander, but not human beings. There are level stretches of land, delightful, where both monkeys and human beings wander. In such spots, hunters set a tar trap for the monkeys' tracks in the monkeys' tracks in order to catch some monkeys. Those monkeys who are not foolish or careless by nature when they see the tar trap will keep their distance. You know what a tar trap is, don't you? It's a big lump of tar, and it's sticky, and the monkey comes up. Well, here, I'll describe it. Just a big lump, lump of tar, okay? But any monkey who is foolish and careless by nature comes up to the tar trap and grabs it with its paw, which then gets stuck there. Thinking, I'll free my paw, he grabs it with his other paw. That too gets stuck. You got the image, right? Okay. It's like Br'er Rabbit. You know. Thinking, I'll free both of my paws, he grabs it with his foot. That too gets stuck. Thinking, I'll free both of my paws and my foot, he grabs it with his other foot. That too gets stuck. Thinking, I'll free both of my paws and my feet as well, he grabs it with his mouth. <laughs> that too gets stuck. <laughs> so the monkey snared in five ways. Think what the five things symbolize? 
the five strands of sensuality, right? Lies there whimpering, having fallen on misfortune, fallen on ruin, a prey to whatever the hunter wants to do with him. And this next sentence is the sentence that Andy Olensky left out of his translation. Then the hunter, without releasing the monkey, skewers him right there, picks him up and goes off as he likes. This is what happens to anyone who wanders into what is not his proper territory, and is the territory of others. So again, that your proper territory is staying with the four frames of reference. That's your safe territory in those areas where neither human where human beings do not go. But otherwise, you wander into what is not your territory, and you get stuck. You get trapped by Mara, who will skewer you and pick you up and take you off as he likes. So that's an, that. That particular passage is an analogy for the process of establishing mindfulness with one frame of reference. Now, the second level, which is called the developing of the establishing of mindfulness, there's an analogy here. And look on page 5, it's passage number 14. Now, remember, we talked about your understanding of the process of origination. You're seeing what works and what doesn't work in terms of your practice. Now, suppose there is a wise, experienced, skillful cook who has presented a king or king's minister with various kinds of curry mainly sour, mainly bitter, mainly peppery, mainly sweet, alkaline or non-alkaline. They actually have curries like that in Thailand, alkaline curries. It's sort of puckery. Salty or not salty. He picks up on the theme, this is the word nimita, remember the word nimita, we'll we'll be seeing this again later on, of his master, thinking, today my master likes this curry, or he reaches out for that curry, or he takes a lot of this curry, or he praises that curry. Today my master likes mainly sour, etc., etc. As a result, the, the end of the paragraph here, the cook is rewarded with clothing, wages, and gifts. Why is that? Because the wise, experienced, skillful cook picks up on the theme of his own master. In the same way, there's a case where a wise, experienced, skillful monk remains focused on the body in and of itself, feelings, mind, mental qualities in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. As he remains thus focused on mental qualities in and of themselves, his mind becomes concentrated, his defilements are abandoned. He picks up on that theme. In other words, you notice, this is what works. When I do it this way, these are the results I get. If I'd given you the full, the full passage, there's the foolish, inexperienced cook who doesn't pick up on the theme, just like the foolish, inexperienced meditator doesn't pick up. When things work, doesn't no- take note of it. When they don't work, you don't take note of it. In other words, you believe there is no such thing as a good or a bad meditation. And as a result, you end up with bad meditation. So what it's saying here, that you can learn from what works and what doesn't work. As a result, you're rewarded with a pleasant abiding here and now, here and now together with mindfulness and alertness. Why is that? Because the wise, experienced, skillful meditator picks up on the theme of his or her own mind. So this is the process of looking at origination and passing away with regard to the body or with regard to any other, other frames of reference, you try different things and you see what works. What gets the results that you want, what doesn't get the results that you want. You take note of that fact, and as a result, over time, you begin to develop skill as a meditator. Finally, when we get back on the very end of passage 10, here at the back, it's on the top of page 4, Very last paragraph. What is the path of practice to the development of the establishing of mindfulness? And it's just this noble eightfold path, right view, right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So in order to develop this skill, 
You have to have all eight factors of the path working together. And this is important because sometimes you read that there is a path of right mindfulness which doesn't seem to have anything to do with the other factors of the path. But the Buddha says to develop the establishing of the mindfulness is to get you know, to get to the point where you're beginning to gain insight. You have to bring all, all eight factors of the path to bear. This is what you do to develop the foundation of mindfulness and to develop the establishing of mindfulness. Excuse me. So before we go on with that that theme, I'd like to stop and ask if there are any questions on what we just did, what we just talked about just now. Is it all clear? Yes, Pat. Um, <clears throat> so, the this Noble Eightfold Path and development of the establishment of mindfulness. Is that a specific application of the path to developing a mindfulness? Like would right livelihood actually reflect what job you have at the time you're meditating or does it reflect to something in specific to developing of mindfulness? Okay, here, here he's talking about every aspect of, of the path as a whole. It's develop it's hard to work on concentration when you know you're during you're engaged in a wrong livelihood. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Is that it? Okay. And let's move on then. I've got a few passages here next on the role of concentration in developing right mindfulness, particularly right concentration. And you'll notice as we go through the next several passages that the Buddha puts concentration and mindfulness together. He doesn't draw a clear line between the two, two practices. First, I'd just like to make a few comments on right concentration. That it's, um, when they talk about being a stream enderer, you've all heard the term stream enderer, stream winner. The definition of the stream is all, eightfold, all, all factors of the Eightfold Path becoming complete. So that includes everything from right view down to right concentration. So it is right concentration is definitely a part of the, of the stream for stream entry. Although the Buddha says this is a quality the stream enter has developed to some extent, but not yet fully. The, the stream enter after that, the experience of stream entry will have to work more on concentration, just like he or she will have to work more on discernment. And two other points I wanted to make. Um, one is I've already raised, but when you look at those analogies for, for right concentration for jhana, the first one is now the only one where you have a purposeful active agent. In other words, you have someone working, kneading the bath powder with the water to get them to sort of work through the body, just like you're going through all the patterns of tension in the body and sort of working them through and cleaning them up in the same way that the, um, the bathman is mixing the, the water with the, with the powder. Or another analogy you could say was when you're making bread, you're mixing the water with the flour in order to get the bread dough just right. Whereas with the other ones, it, it's, okay, once you, it's just the focus in and of itself that will spread the, the rapture and pleasure or whatever throughout the body. And then secondly is that I also noted that 
the images of right concentration in the canon all talk about spreading the rapture through the body. It's a very expansive state of mind. In fact, one of the words for the mind in jhana is mahagatang, which means expanded or enlarged. Your frame of awareness is enlarged, so it fills the whole body. So let's look at some of the passages talking about the interplay of right mindfulness and right concentration. Passage 11. Wisaka is talking to Sister Damadina. According to the commentary, Wisaka is a non-returner. Sister Damadina is an arahant. They were husband and wife before she ordained. Now he's asking, this is part of a long conversation where he asks her questions about the Dharma. Now, what is concentration, he asks. What qualities are its themes? What qualities are its requisites? And what is its development? Okay. And she says, singleness of mind is concentration. The four establishings of mindfulness are its themes. And in other words, when you're focusing on an object of concentration, it's going to come under one of the four frames of reference, so one of the four establishings of mindfulness. That's the focal point of the consciousness, the concentration, excuse me. The four right exertions are its requisites, those are the four right efforts. And any cultivation, development, and pursuit of these qualities is the development of right concentration. So the focal point of the right concentration is basically right mindfulness. Passage number 12. Here's the Buddha talking to a monk who asks, you know, I'd like a short teaching so I can go off and practice and maybe I'll attain awakening. And the Buddha says, oh, every, every monk comes along and asks these things. And the monk says, no, I mean it. <laughs> and so then the Buddha says, okay, you should train yourself thus. My mind will be established inwardly, well composed. No evil, unskillful qualities, once arisen, will remain consuming the mind. That's how you should train yourself. And then he talks about different ways of doing this. First he goes through the four Brahma-viharas. Goodwill, as my awareness released, will be developed, pursued, given a means of transport, given a grounding, steadied, consolidated, and well undertaking. That's how you should train yourself. When you've developed this concentration in this way, you should develop this concentration with directed thought and evaluation. You should develop with no directed thought and a modicum of evaluation. You should develop with no directed thought and no evaluation. You should develop accompanied by rapture, not accompanied by rapture, endowed with a sense of enjoyment. You should develop it endowed with equanimity. So he's basically talking about working through the jhanas based on goodwill as your object. This is when this concentration is thus developed, well, well thus developed, thus well developed by you, then you should train yourself, taking compassion, appreciation, or empathetic joy, and then equanimity, as my awareness release will be developed, given a means of transport, given a grounding, steady, consolidated, well undertaken. Well undertaken. So it's obviously in this passage, he's talking about the jhanas he heard based on the four Brahma-viharas. Then he turns and goes further. He says, when this concentration is thus developed, thus well developed by you, you should then train yourself thus. I will remain focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. That's how you should train yourself. And when you have developed this concentration, notice here, that's the standard definition for right mindfulness, but he calls it a kind of concentration. Okay. We develop this concentration in this way. You should develop this concentration with directed thought and evaluation. You should direct it with no directed thought and a modicum of evaluation. You should develop it with no directed thought and no evaluation. You should develop it accompanied by rapture, not accompanied by rapture, endowed with a sense of enjoyment. You should develop it endowed with equanimity. And then similarly with the other three establishings, feelings in and of themselves, mind states and mental qualities in and of themselves. And then it ends up by saying, when this concentration is thus developed, thus well developed by you, 
then wherever you go, you will go in comfort. Wherever you stand, you will stand in comfort. Wherever you sit, you will sit in comfort. Wherever you lie down, you will lie down in comfort. Okay, so here he's obviously talking about mindfulness as a kind of concentration. So that kind of erases any distinction between the two processes, or any clear antithesis between the two processes. Similarly, in the next passage, having abandoned the five hindrances, imperfections of awareness that weaken discernment. Can we replace monk with meditator? The meditator remains focused on the body and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And the same with the other two, three frames of reference. Now, just as if an elephant trainer were to plant a large post in the ground and were to bind a forest elephant to it by the neck in order to break it of its forest habits, its forest memories and resolves, its distraction, fatigue and fever over leaving the forest, to make it delight in the town and to inculcate it in habits congenial to human beings. In the same way, these four establishings of mindfulness are bindings for the awareness of the disciple and noble ones, to break him of his household habits, his household memories and resolves, his distraction, fatigue and fever over leaving the household life for the attainment of the right method and the realization of the unbinding. Okay, so that's the first step, just basically establishing these things. And notice that here, again, as an analogy for the practice of mindfulness as a post to tie the mind down to. Then the Tathagata trains him further. Come, monk, remain focused on the body in and of itself, but do not think any thoughts connected with the body. Remain focused on feelings in and of themselves, but do not think any thoughts connected with feelings. In other words, just focus on them without doing any directed thought or evaluation about any one of these. And it says at the very end, with the stilling of directed thought and evaluation, you enter into the second jhana. So what it sounds like is when you're doing a basic mindfulness practice, it's, you're starting out in the first jhana. Basic mindfulness gets you in the first jhana. And then when you decide that you're going to just be there, focused on the sensation, say, of the body or feelings, etc., without doing any directed thought about those things, then you enter into the second jhana. So again, there's kind of an overlap between the practice of mindfulness and the practice of right concentration. <coughs> and similarly with passage 15. Here the Buddha is talking to Ananda. This is a case of a meditator who remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. As he remains thus focused on the body in and of itself, a fever based on the body arises within his body, or there is sluggishness in his awareness, or his mind becomes scattered externally. In other words, you're having trouble getting settled down. Okay? Then you should direct your mind to any inspiring theme. And here the commentary says things such as the recollection of the Buddha. Um, you recollect the Buddha, you can think about the Buddha's good qualities, compassion, purity, wisdom, how inspiring it is to have a teacher like that, how lucky you are to have a teacher like that. Um, anything that gets you feeling good about the practice, good about what you're doing. You can, re- you can recollect the Dharma, how hard it is to find a Dharma that's totally offered for free and has you know, principles that are timeless. You can recollect the Sangha, which you think about other members of the Sangha have had trouble in their meditation, so why should I be upset about having some trouble in mine? They, overcome, they overcame the problems. And here we're talking about the noble Sangha, okay? 
We're not talking about the everyday Sangha just sitting here. Because sometimes recollecting this Sangha is not going to get you very inspired. (laughs) Especially after you've had a meeting of the board or something. (laughs) What you're trying to think about is people in the past who've who've attained at least stream entry. And when you say, where did they start? They started right where I am, if not worse. Okay, but they were able to overcome their problems. If they could do it, so can I. Okay, when you think about that, then you get a sense of refreshment, a sense of inspiration. Other topics you can think about would include recollecting your own generosity. Times in the past we gave a gift that felt really, really good. And usually those are times when you didn't have to give the gift, but you just felt like giving it. You went away and then you noticed that it really was helpful for the person. So, so those are good kinds of gifts to give. Um, you can recollect your own virtue times when you were tempted to do something. You could have gotten away with murder, but you didn't do it. Okay. And then there's another standard recollection. You're going to laugh when you hear this one. It's recollection of the Davis. Nobody laughed. They just went, hmm. <laughs> recollection of the Davis means you think about the qualities that turn that the Davis developed in order to become Davis, and you realize, so I have those qualities too. They had generosity, I have generosity. They had conviction, I have conviction. Whatever you need to become a deva, you've already got some of that already. When you think about that, that can inspire your mind. So these are some of the things that are traditionally used to inspire the mind when you're having trouble settling down. Okay, As your mind is directed to any of these inspiring themes, delight arises within you. In one who feels delight, rapture arises. In one whose mind is enraptured, the body grows serene. Your body serene, you feel pleasure. As you feel pleasure, your mind grows concentrated. Okay, that, that way you settle down thinking about something that you find inspiring. Okay. You reflect, I have attained the aim to which my mind was directed. Let me withdraw my mind from that inspiring thing. So that's what you do. You withdraw the mind and engage neither in directed thought nor evaluation. You discern, I am not thinking or evaluating. I am inwardly mindful and at ease, i.e. you're in the second jhana. Mm-hmm. And then you can do that with any, and the, the same problem if you're trying to focus on feelings, mind states, or mental qualities. Okay. This, the Buddha says, is development based on directing. And what is development based on not directing? Meditator, when not directing your mind to external things, discerns my mind is not directed to external things. It is not attentive to what is in front or behind. It is released and undirected. And furthermore, I remain focused on the body in and of itself. I am ardent, alert, mindful, and at ease. Okay, this is one way of getting concentrated. Just say, hey, I'm not focused on anything outside. And just make up your mind. I'm going to focus on anything outside. And you settle into what's inside, i.e. body, feelings, mind states, mental qualities. So any questions on any of those, those passages which basically have a, show a huge overlap between mindfulness practice and concentration practice? Particularly that as you're working on establishing mindfulness, you're actually getting the mind in the first jhana. I was a little uh, confused about, um, I guess it's passage 13, that uh, last paragraph, uh, do not think any thoughts connected with it. It seems like uh, we have to think that enough, there has to be enough thinking there to apply the four right efforts. Okay, at that particular time, you have applied the four right efforts and you've gotten the results which you want. And so the right effort at this point will be to 
it's it's more refined to be with the object and not think than there than it is to be thinking about it. So that's that's the thought that would put you into that state. So okay, I just don't have to think about these things anymore. So like with the guided meditation, you you brought us through the same thing that you reach a point where you're not doing those three steps. You're just present with what is. Yeah, eventually you want to get to where you've worked through the body. Like I was basically getting you prepared for the first stage where you're you know, just kind of working through all the patterns of tension and other things that are preventing the feelings of ease from spreading through the body. Once you've opened up those channels, you don't have to think that much about them anymore. You can just stay with the, the comfort, stay with the breath. So you're not, you don't have to be constantly hovering around. There are times when you say, okay, I've got what I want going, and if I think too much, it's going to disturb it, so I'll just stay right here. So someplace in the back of the mind is the monitor still watching, but the monitor saying, okay, now calm down on the thinking. Okay. You could see how this passage could be subverted to serve other meetings of mindfulness, like you know, not just being with whatever is arising, you mm-hmm. know, but, mm-hmm. but you're not at that refined state. Yeah. Well, notice, you have to get the mind to a pretty refined state before you can say, okay, now I'm just going to be with what's here. Because you've done a good job of straightening out what's here. It's like the difference between lying down in your bed when it's a mess and actually cleaning it up. You, know. you lie down, you, you lie down, you haven't done any cleaning up in your bed. You oops, oh, there's, there's, there's a toy that was left over from this morning or something. And, and, um, or that test that Charles did for Diana in Bloom County. Remember that? Put a can of peas under her, under her, <laughs> under her mattress. <laughs> She finds it. She throws it at him. Um, no, when you're when you're meditating, I, I, there was an analogy I used once in Thailand, and I learned never to use it again in Thailand. I said it's like a dog lying down to sleep, because um, you know the dog lies down. Whoops, there's a stone, so the dog gets up and scratches, and then it lies down again. Whoops, there's a tree root, so you get up and you scratch around, and so you know the dogs stir around and scratch here and scratch there, and then when everything is nice, then they lie down, right? Or like your own bed. I hope you all clean up your beds before you lie down. <laughs> but basically, this is what you're doing. You straighten everything out, and then you don't have anything you have to straighten out anymore, so you just lie down. And you'll be still. Yes? So, directed development and alternatives that one chooses for oneself, depending yeah. on... Whichever one works, yes. Because sometimes all I have to do is think, I'm, I'm really not concerned about anything outside, I'm fine, boom, you settle right down. And other people have to really work their way to get down. My, my teacher noted that he had two kinds of students. He said the students for whom concentration became almost too easily, they said, just forget about everything outside and they settle down on the breath. And then the ones for whom it came too hard, I mean, they really had a lot of con- you know, concerns and issues outside that they had to sort of you know, sort away. John Mahabhu gives the example of um, trying to fell a tree. He says some trees are out in the middle of a meadow, and all you have to do is just cut them down, and they're going to fall down, no problem at all. Whereas other trees are in a forest, and their, their branches are entangled with the branches of other trees. And so first you have to cut the branches off, and then you have to figure out, well, which direction can I, will the tree fall so it doesn't crash into other trees? And then you can cut it down. Okay. Now
as a joke, I included um, passage 16. Because we could spend the whole day on passage 16. But what I wanted to point out here, the main point you take away from this passage, especially the first half, the Buddha here is describing the 16 stages of breath meditation, and he divides them up into the four establishings of mindfulness. Now, the 16 stages of breath meditation are also called a method of concentration. So we're working on mindfulness and concentration at the same time as you're going through the 16 steps. The 16 steps are divided into four tetrads of four steps each. The first tetrad applies to the body, the second one applies to feelings, the third applies to mind states, and the fourth applies to dhammas, mental qualities. And what, you want, what I wanted you to notice here, in each of these states there's a certain pattern. The first one you tune into that particular aware, area of your awareness. For instance, you tune into the breath, or you tune into feelings, or you tune into mind states, or you tune into dhammas. As you tune into them, then you begin to get a sense of how you can manipulate them. And then as you learn how to manipulate them, you figure out how you can manipulate them to greater peace. That's the basic pattern for each of the tetrads. For instance, the first tetrad, you first you just simply discern the fact that you're breathing in long or breathing out long, breathing in short or breathing out short. And then for the remaining steps, though, you train yourself. Third step is to train yourself, I'll breathe in and out, sensitive to the entire body. You train yourself, I'll breathe in and out, calming bodily fabrication. Bodily fabrication, you remember, is the in and out breath. So first, you, as I said, you're sensitive to the entire body as you breathe in and out. And you begin to notice the effect that the breath has on the body. And so your next step is to try to calm that effect. What kind of perceptions can you hold in mind that will make the breath calmer, bring it to more refinement? One that I've found is thinking of the body like a big sponge. It has all these pores all over the body. The breath can come in and go out. It's a lot easier when you think of it that way. It's a lot easier for the breath energy to get to all the different parts of the body so you can breathe with it in a much calmer way. In the second tetrad, first you breathe in and out sensitive to rapture, you breathe in and out sensitive to pleasure. Now we're definitely here talking about state the mind and states of concentration. Then you breathe in and out sensitive to mental fabrication, i.e. you see the way in which feelings and perceptions have an effect on the mind. And then you breathe in and out calming mental fabrication. In other words, you try to find perceptions, you try to find feelings that are calming. Sometimes the rapture is too strong, so you don't want to go for something just like rapture with a pleasure without the rapture. Sometimes the pleasure seems too gross, you want to go for equanimity. That has a calming effect on the mind. In the third tetrad, you train yourself, breathe in and out, sensitive to the mind. Okay, you're watching the mind state that you've got, and then you notice. Okay, if the mind state needs to be gladdened, then you say, I will breathe in and out, gladdening the mind. In other words, where the mind state is too sluggish or too down, you find some ways of refreshing it, giving it more energy. Or if the mind is unsteady, then you train yourself to breathe in and out, steadying the mind. And finally, if, if you begin to realize that you can begin to see how you can take the mind from one level of jhana down to the next, 
or actually release it from release it first in the first case from the hindrances, and from there you release it from, say, the factors of jhana in the first jhana, so you get to the second jhana. That's called releasing the mind. This means bringing the mind to greater and greater stages of concentration. So again, notice here, you're working actively toward a particular goal. You're sensitizing yourself to that aspect of your awareness. And then as you get more sensitive to how cause and effect work in that area, then you begin to you try to manipulate the causes for greater and greater stillness, greater and greater sense of freedom. In the fourth tetrad, you train yourself to breathe in and out, focusing on inconstancy. You begin to notice whatever area it might be. It might be the inconstancy in your state of concentration. It might be the inconstancy of other pleasures, other interests. And this is important. When you focus on the inconstancy of something, if it's, if it's something that you're pretty blasé about to, be, to begin with, it's not going to have any impact on the mind. You've got to focus on the inconstancy of things that you're attached to, things you're attracted to. That's when it begins to have an impact. And in the inconstancy, you will see stress. In the stress, you will see not-self. That leads to the next step. You breathe in and out, focusing on dispassion. You see that whatever it was that you were attached to that cannot provide the happiness you had hoped for or had anticipated. So you develop dispassion. Dispassion, and as you develop dispassion, that's when you begin to realize that a lot of these things that you, would ex you were experiencing were the result of your own activity, your own interest in them. Remember, we talked earlier about how much role that the mind plays in creating its awareness or creating its experience. And when you lose your taste for that kind of interaction or your taste for that particular involvement, the things that you actually were creating cease. And in many cases, you didn't realize you were creating them. This is, this, this is the shocking part. This is why you know, they talk about you know, awakening being startling. Because you're startled to find out exactly how much you are creating. So these, these things cease. And when they cease, that, that, that's the point where you give up everything, even the discernment that led you to that. That's the fourth stage, is relinquishment. You can see these four steps as being related to the Four Noble Truths. Inconstancy is related to the first truth. Dispassion is the duty you have with regard to the second truth. Cessation, of course, would be regard to the third truth. And the relinquishment is what you do to the path when the path has finished its work. Now the Buddha goes on to say, as you work on these four establishings of mindfulness in any one of these ways, And notice what the Buddha is saying here is that you can work on any one of the four tetrads. You don't have to go through all 16 steps. If you find that it's easiest to stay focused on feelings, that can be the tetrad that you work on most. Most people, however, do work with the body. But as you develop these four establishments of mindfulness, they bring the seven factors of awakening to their culmination. And he goes through it like this. One, on whatever occasion... The meditator remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. On that occasion, the meditator's mindfulness is steady and without lapse. When your mindfulness is steady and without lapse, then mindfulness as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. You develop it, and for you it goes to the culmination of its development. Remaining mindful in this way, you analyze and come to a comprehension of that quality with discernment, the quality of mindfulness. 
Now, there are other passages where the Buddha talks about analyzing and examining things in terms of what's skillful and what's not. Those are the terms that you use to analyze things. Which qualities are skillful, which ones are not. Okay. Then, in that way, analysis of qualities as a factor of awakening becomes aroused. In one who examines, analyzes, and comes to comprehension of that quality with discernment, persistence is aroused unflaggingly. In other words, once you see what's skillful and not, then the four right efforts begin to kick in. In step four, as your persistence is aroused, as right effort is aroused, a rapture not of the flesh arises. This would be the rapture of the jhana, the first jhana. Okay, after you've been enraptured, in step five, your mind grows calm. Serenity. For one who is at ease, your body calm, the mind becomes concentrated. That's step six. And then step seven, as you watch all this, the mind thus concentrated with equanimity. Remember, notice here where the equanimity comes. It comes after the mind has been concentrated. There actually there are two or three areas, levels of equanimity that are mentioned in reference to meditation. One is the very beginning, where the Buddha teaches, like when he's giving meditation instruction to his son Rahula, he tells him, okay, try to make your mind like earth. People spit on the earth and they throw disgusting things on the earth, but the earth doesn't react. Make your mind like water. People use water to wash away all kinds of disgusting stuff, but the water doesn't react, and so on down. The purpose of equanimity or patience there is so you can actually watch what's going on, so you're not immediately reacting. But then once you've learned that, then you go through the steps of breath meditation. So you're not just staying where you are. You use your knowledge of what works and what doesn't work, so you can bring the mind to a greater sense of ease, greater sense of stillness, greater sense of concentration. And then when the mind has been thoroughly concentrated, then you have a different level of equanimity. This is called equanimity based on singleness. But then even the equanimity is not the end. We'll get to that later in the, in the day. And so finally, in the very end of passage 16, how are the seven factors for awakening developed and pursued so as to bring clear knowing and release to their culmination? And in each case, you develop each of the factors of awakening dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, resulting in letting go. In other words, you're getting into that fourth frame of reference. The dispassion, cessation, or the letting go, or the relinquishment. And ultimately what this means is you let go even of the factors for awakening. That's how you bring clear knowing and release the culmination. So the Buddha is talking here both about developing mindfulness and developing concentration in tandem. The two processes work together. Any questions on that passage? If you have a sense that I'm rushing you through the material, I am. But, <laughs> but I hope it's clear. Yes. There's a question way in the back. Uh, could you please say again what uh, a definition of inconstancy is? That's anicca, sometimes translated as impermanence. And it's, it's related to, and when we're dividing those, those last four steps in accordance with the Four Noble Truths, that would that would correspond to the first first truth. 
Now the reason I translate is in inconstancy is the word anicca is the opposite of nicca, which means constant, something you do constantly. And if you stop and think about it, it's the word constancy actually has more to do with our psychological reasons for being attached to things. I mean, if, you know, you don't worry about the fact is your car permanent, right? Because you know it's not permanent, but if you go, it'll it'll work well enough for me to use it, and I can depend on it well, you know, reasonably amount reasonable amount of time. And then you find all of a sudden it breaks down suddenly. That's when you begin to feel betrayed, <laughs> right? So it's the lack of constancy where there's the feeling of betrayal, not the impermanence. Because we, we, this, this topic came up earlier today and during the, the, the lunch break. If you ask yourself, why are you attached to things? Now, are you attached to them because you think, because you think they're permanent? Like this glass. Suppose you're attached to this glass. You're attached to it because it gives you pleasure and the amount of effort required to keep the glass going is worth the pleasure you get out of it, right? That's why you're attached to things. And what the Buddha is actually asking you to look at is that the effort that you put into this is not worth it. That's when you would let go. Once you see that for yourself, that's when you let go. Question over here. Yeah. What, um, what is your take on the phrase, is classed as a body among bodies? Okay, there's many different ways of defining body, and the breath is a body of one type of body. You've got the breath body. And here you're talking, as I said earlier, it's not just the air coming in and out of the lungs, but it's the whole energy. Energy body. Yes. Um, to get a bit specific, if you're working with, say, um, a chronic low back pain, mm -hmm. and maybe it's from a herniated disc, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you have perception, mm -hmm. uh, a label for it, and you also have constant pain. Mm -hmm. uh, that's intractable, perhaps, not going away. Mm -hmm. So in this way of working, can you give some suggestions how you could spread pleasure through the whole body that would allow the body to, to settle? Okay, first, um, a lot of this has to do with your perception of the pain. And you might want to ask yourself, when you're, when, you're, when you're working with the pain, do you feel like the pain is coming at you? And are you catching the pain? Or can you turn that around and tell yourself, I'm watching that particular pain disappear. And the experience is like sitting in the back seat of one of those old station wagons facing backwards. And the station wagon's going down the road and you're just watching things disappear behind you. And it's a very different experience from being sitting in the front seat and watching it all come at you. And so if you can hold that perception in mind that you're watching the pain, each moment of pain disappearing, 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 you're on top of it and you're not the victim of it quite so much. So that's one thing you could do. That's, you know, you're working with mental fabrication. And then as, as for working with the breath, you can keep the breath going through the different parts of the body. What parts of the body are tending to tense up around the disc? And that, are you asking me that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I don't actually have the problem. No, but suppose, 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 okay. I mean, that's what, that's what you would ask yourself. 
So, so it, it could be the low back or down sciatica into the, it could be a pretty significant part of a person's body. It right, right. Their mm-hmm. low back mm-hmm. all the way down their leg and their foot, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. kind of like a constant toothache. Yeah. Well, you'll notice that it's not just the sciatica. There will also be different parts of the body where the tension, because the tension of kind of pulling, us, pulling yourself away from the pain is going to have an effect on different parts of the body. It will go up into your head, into your shoulders, into your neck. Um, and so that's that, that, that much you can breathe through. See, so how much of this tension is just total, you know, unnecessary overload? And think of the breath going through the neck, going through the back, going down as much as you can. And you find that you minimize, you, you make the pain a lot less. And you're left with, you know, whatever pain is there simply because of the actual you know, pinched nerve or the herniated disc or whatever. And that's a lot easier to deal with than the whole system of tension and everything that tends to build up around it. So am I understanding this correctly that uh, you might need to experiment with it and if you find that the pain truly is intractable by, say, shifting your perception to watching the pain going from Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. and um, by by working on areas away from the central pain but Mm -hmm. where the compensation Mm -hmm. is and the tension that if you can't really touch that core pain, that you would just let it be there. And yeah, what else are you going to do? And then if, if that were the case, how settled can a person get? Well, again, if you have that perception that you're watching the pain disappear, it's a lot easier to get the mind settled and concentrated. I've had sciatica in the past, and... Um, you know, if you if you look if you regard it that way, okay, this is, you know, it's a pain that's there, and, and okay, both of us are going to be here, and you know, if, if I don't leave, and it's not going to leave, we have to learn how to figure out some sort of you know peaceful arrangement. And so one of the peaceful arrangements is just that, okay, I'm not here at the receiving end of this pain; it's doing its own thing; it's not aiming its pain at me. And you just learn to watch it going away, going away, going away, and hold that perception in mind. And you find that you don't have to suffer as much from it. You can settle down. Uh, one, one last uh, yeah. part of that. W- would it also be skillful, perhaps, to just bring, you know, focus the attention to where the pleasure in the body may be able to spread and just... Yeah. Mm. Well, again, that's, that's how you would work on those compens- compensatory... Find, find first where, you're, where the feeling of ease is. It might be in your hands. It might be in your, you know, wherever and focus on that so it's nice and strong. And then from that feeling of relaxation, spread that feeling of relaxation, say, through the back of the neck, down down the shoulders, wherever. And then hold that perception in mind. Um, A couple years back, I was in Singapore, and I was taken to a Chinese doctor for treatment. He did one of those things where he rubs oil into your back, and then he takes one of these little bamboo rods where they they slice it up so it it looks like kind of like a, a whisk. And they beat you <laughs> nonstop <laughs> for 15 minutes or whatever. And I found this this perception of okay, the pain is going away, going away, going away, going. And it was a much I you know I got into a fairly good state of concentration and I was okay. Rather than the first couple of minutes, I said, "What the hell is this person doing?" <laughs> and I'm supposed to sit here for 15 minutes. This is crazy. <laughs> but as long as you realize, okay, if there's nothing I can do about the raw experience of the pain, then I have to work on my, you know, the fabrications that I'm bringing to the pain what, and, and what 
preconceived notions I have about pain, where I am in relation to the pain, what direction it's coming at, is it coming at me, is it going away, whatever. And you find that those preconceived notions are actually the major part of the pain, the major that's causing the burden on the mind. Yes, way in the back. Uh, I'm just think, looking at this in, in uh, constancy, dispassion, cessation, and relinquishment. Uh, that's pretty neat. I never saw that as the Four Noble Truths before. Mm-hmm. But uh, is that also, could you look at, at it as the three characteristics, at least three of them? Well, you've got the three characteristics right there in the inconstancy. Well, in dispassion, could that be not self? Well, I mean, the perception of not self leads to dispassion. Mm-hmm. And then cessation, could that be cessation of suffering? Well, again, it, is, it would be the cessation of suffering, but you have to remember the suffering in the three characteristics is a little bit different from suffering in the Four Noble Truths. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then I was trying, I was looking at mapping this to uh, the jhanas also. Could you map that to no, the jhanas? No, no, no. No? No. no. What's meant by relinquishment? Relinquishment is when you give everything back. Tell me more. Tell me more. Okay, up to this point, you've been, remember, you've been holding on to the path. And, you know, you use the path to let go of all your other attachments, but you still got that one thing you're holding on to, which would be your concentration or your discernment. Or whatever that's telling, that's, you know, that, that you've been relying on to do the work for you. But ultimately, you realize, okay, these two are fabricated qualities. You're going to have to let them go. And that's the final relinquishment. Yes? So how is the dukkha in the Four Noble Truths different than the dukkha of the three characteristics? Okay, the dukkha in the Four Noble Truths comes from craving. And the three characteristics, it's just the, the element of stress that's in anything that's caused. Like the fact that you've got a body that needs to be looked after all the time. Now, there's an element of stress right there. But if you have no craving associated with the body, you're not going to be, the mind itself is not going to be burdened down by that stress. Um, the difference is probably best illustrated by an analogy that John Sawat once made. We were down at the monastery, we're right across the valley from Palomar Mountain. And looked over the mountain one day and said, Is that mountain heavy? Of course, you know, when John asks you a question like that, it's a trick question. So, you've got to, so, um, so he finally answered it. He said, well, if you try to pick it up, yes, it's heavy. But if you don't pick up, up, it up, it's maybe heavy in itself, but it's not heavy on you. Now, picking up the mountain, that's the dukkha of the Four Noble Truths. And the heaviness of the mountain in and of itself, that's the dukkha of the three characteristics. There's a whole article I wrote on this. It's called... Um, Oh, let's get these two mixed up. The weight of mountains. You can. There's more on that particular topic. Mm-hmm. Shall we look at the Sthipatthana Sutta? We'll get part way through, and then we'll break for. Little break. So what I've been doing so far is 
giving you a background so you can look at the Satipatthana Sutta and interpret some of the passages in ways that you might not have thought of if you just came to this sutta cold. Okay. The Buddha starts out saying this is the direct path. Passage 17, bottom of page 7. This is the direct path for the purification of the beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, for the realization of unbinding. In other words, the four establishings of mindfulness. Okay. Now just look at that one paragraph for a minute. Probably the, the one controversial phrase in there is direct path. It's in Pali as ekaya namaga. Sometimes you will see this translated as the only path. Um, and there's no basis in the canon for that, however. There is the basis, however. There's a passage where the Buddha talks about seeing someone, you're watching someone on an ekaya namaga that heads toward a big pit. And you say, as long as this person continues to walk on this pit, and walk on this path, he's going to get to the pit. So it's basically a path that doesn't branch out and go in other directions. So that's what the analogy means. Another interpretation that has been proposed by another scholar is that Ekainamaga here refers to the fact that it's one path, but it accomplishes a lot of things. It purifies beings, it overcomes sorrow and lamentation, helps pain and distress disappear, and it helps you to attain the right method and to realize Nibbana. All of that is accomplished by this one path. So those are the two meanings of direct path. Okay, then he starts out with the body. He goes through the different ways of remaining focused on the body in and of itself. He starts out first with the four, first four steps in breath meditation. This case where a meditator, having gone to the wilderness, to the shade of a tree, or to an empty building, sits down folding, you, put, sit, you sit down folding your legs crosswise, holding your body erect, and setting mindfulness to the four. There's the, the Pali term there is Bharti Mukha, which if you took it apart in terms of its, um, etymologically, it would mean around the mouth or around the face. But there is a passage in the in the Vinaya where they talk about monks shaving off the hair of their bardhimukha, and it means a sh- shaving off the hair on their chest. <laughs> so that seems to be the meaning of the term. But I think more generally, it can mean you bring this to the fore. This becomes the you know the main object of your awareness. Set mindfulness to the fore. Always mindful you breathe in, mindful you breathe out. And then he goes to the four steps. First four steps of breath meditation makes an analogy to a person, let's see. Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice when making a long turn, and turn here means like a turn on a lathe. You know somebody whose last name is Turner, some, one of their ancestors worked a lathe, okay? Just as a skilled turner or his apprentice when making a long turn discerns he's making a long turn, or making a short turn discerns he's making a short turn, in the same way that when the monk breathing in long discerns I'm breathing in long, etc. Then we get to the refrain. Now this is important. Okay, now first we've got the establishing of the mindfulness. And then it says, in this way he remains focused internally on the body in and of itself, or externally on the body in and of itself, or both internally and externally on the body in and of itself. Okay, that's continuing the establishment of mindfulness. Now the question is, what does it mean to be focused on somebody else's body? Especially with breathing. We could, it can mean one thing. One, um, well, 
back up a second, does, does internally, externally mean internally in your body and in somebody else's body, the canon seems to treat it that way. In other words, what you're doing here is you're, you keep in mind the fact, okay, I'm, I breathe other people's bodies, breathe too. In the same way for all the different body and all the other different family things. Because remember, we're, we're defining mindfulness here not as direct awareness, we're, we're defining it as something you keep in mind. And there's a pattern throughout the canon where the Buddha says, when you learn something about yourself, you can extrapolate and say, this happens to other people too. I grow old, other beings grow old. I get sick, other beings get sick. I die, other beings die. Um, part of this is to erase any attraction you might have to say, when I die, I would like to be rich. Just one more time, please, can I come back as a rich human being? You know? And then, as Jeff's wife said the other day, you know, health trumps wealth. You can become born as the guy out at Filoli, who builds this beautiful house and then gets paralyzed from a stroke. You know? That happens. <laughs> and so the purpose of this extrapolation is, to, is as you realize, okay, whatever suffering you have, other beings have too. There's even suffering up in heaven. It's very subtle, but it's very refined, but it's there as well. And it's a means of helping to develop dispassion. Especially dispassion when you're starting to feel jealous of other people. And then we move into the area of what's, remember what we call the, the development of the f establishing of mindfulness. You remain focused on the phenomenon of origination with regard to the body, on the phenomenon of passing away with regard to the body, or on the phenomenon of origination and passing away with regard to the body. Now that, remember, was called the, the development of the establishing of mindfulness. And then here the refrain as a third step. Or your mindfulness that there is a body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance, and you remain independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Now we're talking here about different stages in the practice. There's many times one of the main problems when you're reading interpretations of this particular sutta is that it treats every factor in this paragraph as something you're doing all simultaneously. But notice the word or, 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 that goes through here. There are alternative ways that you have of working this, and they develop to higher and higher levels. And particularly that very last one, where your mindfulness that there is a body is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance, and you remain independent, not cling to anything in the world. That's a very high level of practice. We're at, we're at the verge here of getting to the point where the mind is going to stop fabricating anything at all. And the reason you know that this, another reason you know that this is a separate type of separate stage in the practice is when you look through some of the exercises that are going to be described here, you find that the mind is engaged in a lot of internal um, dialogue. It's talking to itself. Like when you go through the different parts of the body, when you talk to yourself about, you know, the hindrances are present within me, the hindrances are not present within me, that, and there's a lot of internal discussion that goes on in a lot of these a lot of these practices. So that's this is a later stage in the practice. When you finally get to the point, you don't need to do that internal conversation anymore. You're just there, okay, body. That's all there is. There is a body. You hold it at that point. That's a very high level of the practice. Up until that point, you're working on establishing your frame of reference, and then, as I said, developing the frame of reference as you work in developing concentration around that, as you learn to understand what how are we 
the phenomenon of origination happens, so how the phenomenon of passing away happens with regard to the body. And once you've kind of cleared up all that work, then you're ready for this very last step, which is just holding that mindfulness that there is a body there. So that's that's the first exercise the Buddha gives in terms of the body. The other exercises include discerning when you're walking, discerning when you're standing, when you're sitting, when you're lying down. The third exercise is making yourself fully alert when you are going forward and returning. Now, making yourself fully alert, you're not just sitting there watching what's happening. You are making an effort here to make yourself more and more alert about your actions. When looking toward and looking away, when bending and extending your limbs, when carrying your outer cloak, your upper robe, and your bowl. <laughs> when eating, drinking, chewing, and savoring. When urinating and defecating. When standing, walking, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and remaining silent. You make yourself fully alert. Okay, this, is one of those, this is one of those exercises where it's not just passively observing things, but you are making yourself as fully alert as you, as you could be about that practice. The fourth exercise is analyzing the body into its, in the, in the canon, there are 31 parts. In this body there are head, hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, tendons, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, gorge, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, excuse me, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears. Sounds like Winston Churchill. Um, skin, oil, saliva, mucus, fluid in the joints, and urine. Okay. Okay, which one of those parts would you like? <laughs> what? <laughs> blood, toil, sweat, and tears, right? Remember? <laughs> Here we have blood, sweat, fat, and tears. Okay. Um, as you can imagine, the purpose of this is twofold. One is to... Um, develop a sense of detachment to your body. Remember, we're not talking here about having a negative body image in an unhealthy way. An unhealthy body image, negative body image is, I have an ugly body and everybody else has nice bodies. But in this one you say, I have head, hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, skin, flesh. But so does everybody else. We're all equal in that regard. So it helps to overcome attachment to the body and also, also helps to overcome attachment to other people's bodies. The fifth exercise here is visualizing the, your body as elements or, or the properties, the property of earth, liquid, fire, and wind. You know, just as a skilled butcher or his apprentice having killed a cow would sit at a crossroads cutting up into pieces, the monk contemplates this very body, however it stands, however it is disposed in terms of properties. Here's, here's some of that internal dialogue. In this body, there is earth property, liquid property, fire property, and the wind property. Now, the, the commentary makes an appropriate comment here, saying that when you first have the cow, you still think of it as cow. But as you start cutting it up into pieces, you no longer think of this as a piece of a cow. This becomes a piece of flesh, it becomes a piece of liver or whatever. The perception of cow goes away. And so in the same way, you want to remove the perception of a body as a sort of an independent unit by realizing it's composed of all these properties just like the world outside is composed of these properties. Again, that's a means of 
developing detachment to the body. And then finally, exercise number six is as if you were to see a corpse cast away in a charnel ground, one day, two days, three days dead, bloated, living, and festering. You apply it to this very body. This body, too, such is its nature, such is its future, such is unavoidable fate. And that goes down through imagining the body through various stages of decomposition that it would go through. And to finally it's decomposed into a powder. Again, this, this particular perception is useful for overcoming attachment to the body. And you notice, particularly in this last one, you're not sitting there watching the body as it is in the present moment. You're just reflecting on its nature. This is another reason why this is called a mindfulness practice, because you're not watching the body, something happening to the body at that moment, but you're keeping in the mind the fact that okay, and everybody in this room is going to be a corpse someday. I'm going to be a corpse, you're going to be a corpse. I'm not saying that to criticize anybody. <laughs> I'm not placing a hex on you. It's just going to happen, right? And so you just learn how to regard that. Oh, that's just the way things are. And then from that point, then the question is, okay, what, what can I find in my life that really is of value? And you start looking for where the, where the value is. And the value, of course, lies in training the mind. So it's, it's basically here. It's an exercise to make your priorities straight. I remember years back reading in, in a, I think it was in Discover magazine, Apparently, someplace in Salt Lake City, they've perfected a modern modern form of mummification, where they figured out all the chemicals and everything that need to keep your body from decomposing. And they, they went and they interviewed the people who were signing up for this. And a lot of them tended to be people who were really into their bodies. You know, they're really fit. And, and this one woman said, "Look, I put so much effort in this body. I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to decompose." <laughs> and you think about, you know, a total delusion. <laughs> And yet many of us, of course, do go around forgetting these facts. Okay, this, this, there's not much here that's going to be lasting in a long time. So it helps you make sure that you don't live for the purpose of your body, that you learn how to use your body for other purposes. Okay. Any questions on those, that first series of exercises? Dana. Floating mic. <clears throat> I was just curious why the brain is left out. In many lists, there are 32 parts, and this one, 31. What okay, in the, the commentary, adds the brain. In the canon, the brain is missing. <laughs> that can be taken the wrong way. Um, <laughs> but I think what this was, was originally it was a list of the body parts that doctors were concerned with, which body parts were the causes of illness, and you remember the Greeks couldn't figure out what the brain was for? Remember that? They thought the brain was for cooling your blood because they thought your liver was actually the thinking organ. <laughs> so just throw that out there. But I think that this, this particular list was taken from a medical textbook at the time. Yes? How do you select uh, which of these practices to do? Are they how do you decide? How do you decide? Okay, the breath is, tends to be kind of a, the general basic practice to begin with. And then as you go through the day, you work with being, you know, discerning what you're doing and trying to make yourself fully alert in all of your activities. I mean, that's kind of the basic practice. 
Then you move into the other ones, um, analyzing the Banya 32 parts, 31 parts, analyzing the elements, and analyzing, imagining it decomposing. Th these are for times when you find yourself really attached to the body. Now you don't want to wait until you're finding yourself just really, you know, really, really fast, you know, fascinated with the body. These can be exercises that you might practice, you know, in advance. As, you make, as John Lee says, you make the breath, you're basically your home practice, and these other practices are places where you go traveling. <laughs> okay. As you need them. There was a hand over here? I guess not. Nothing? Okay, that's... That's all I was going to say about the body. Um, let's take a break. Break for about 15, 20 minutes.